And this morning, as we saw the time markers, we're in Good Friday, the Friday before the Sabbath. The Jews celebrated the Sabbath on Saturday. <clears throat> that was their day of rest. Sunday was the first day of the week, the, the day that we now refer to as the Lord's Day, the day that the church in the New Covenant met for worship. This is the account of Christ. Imagine his phony trials brought together two old friends. Let's pray before we get into our text this morning. Uh, Lord, we're so grateful that you have made us a people. You have called us out of darkness. You have given us hope in the name of Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, that as we look at this passage in John, where we're going, I, I pray that our eyes would be open to how it is that you gave us freedom through uh, the sacrifice of Christ. So be with my lips right now and be with our hearts to absorb and understand uh, what is happening and help us more than anything to have a clearer vision of Jesus Christ and that as we reflect on that today, our hearts would be enriched by your work in them. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> So our text this morning is not from Luke, it's actually from John, but what we need to see is that what we just read was not an anomaly or a failure of God in some way or a plan that had gone sideways. God and Jesus Christ had actually conspired together to bring about this plan. And we see this clearly in John chapter 12, verses 24 to 27, and I just want to read that. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it to eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will also be. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. It should be said off the top, and I hope that we all understand this, but we need to remind each other that we do not come here, we do not gather together in order to please God or to be accepted by him. That's not why we come to church. We do not come to church to seek God's acceptance or to try to please him. We are here to joyfully thank him and respond to him for accepting us already in Jesus Christ. To recognize that God looks on Christ and sees us with pleasure. What an amazing reality. <clears throat> it's also not ironic or cliche to use this theme of a seed during the time of Easter. It does take place. Have you ever calculated how Easter falls? It's the first Sunday after the second full moon after the equinox. I'm not even joking. That's how Easter is calculated. So it's a springtime holiday. We know that it also coincides with the Jewish Passover. This, in our season especially, is a time of renewal. It's a time to rake the dead leaves up and to allow the new sprouts to come up. It is a, a theme that is instilled right into nature and it really helps us it really helps us understand the theme of easter and passover 
Janelle helped me write a really nice invitation for these services that really focused on this idea of death and life and how those inter-two play together. Those two interplay together. So my sermon title is Death Before Life. It's something that we have to embrace and something that we have to understand in order to recognize God's work. During the time of spring, grass is greening, buds are sprouting, and we witness the evidence of the long-awaited fruits of dormancy, right? And I say long-awaited in bold letters. Death of winter is giving way and subsiding to the appreciation and growth of spring. This is the exact kind of picture that Jesus uses for us in order to help us understand his life. And so this is the text, unless a, ger- a kernel of wheat falls into the ground. Tim, that's just ringing. Do I just pull in that ring off? I don't know if you guys are hearing that. Okay. So Jesus uses this picture intentionally, and it coincides exactly with our season as well. Now, in this passage in, Ch- in John chapter 12, the context around this teaching is surrounded by death. Death is literally in the air uh, during this time for a couple of reasons. Number one, you may remember when we taught on this back in chapter 11, it's probably on the same page in your Bible, <clears throat> Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, right? He fell sick and then he died and then Jesus called him out of the tomb and he came out wearing his grave clothes. And because of Lazarus, that heated up the opposition to Jesus because Lazarus was going around talking about how Jesus raised him from the dead. The Jewish leaders at that time did not like this, and they did not like giving credit to Jesus Christ. And so they were seeking to kill not only Christ, but now Lazarus, because Lazarus is an accomplice to this message. There's also another story where Mary and Martha have Jesus in their home, and Mary anoints Jesus with an expensive perfume, and she wipes his feet with her hair. And Judas is there and he says, what a waste of expensive ointment. That could have been sold and given to the poor. Why are we dumping perfume on Jesus' feet? And Jesus corrects him and says, what she is doing is preparing me for my burial. She's anointing me with ointment as they did with the dead. She is preparing me for my burial. Also, before they returned to Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, which is the week before, Jesus, it says that he set his heart to go back to Jerusalem. And Thomas is there. And Thomas is saying, are you crazy, Jesus? They want to kill you. If you go back there, you'll be killed. And Jesus says, that's why I came and I'm going. And the disciples at that point kind of saddle up and they say, well, we're going to go with you. There's a somber reality in the air during the teaching of this passage. It's all in this theme of death. And decomposition, and Jesus pulls out this picture of the kernel. He says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And then he breaks into, this is number one in our text. We see a metaphor, we see a principle, and we see an invitation. We see a metaphor, we see a principle, and we see an invitation. The first thing Jesus pulls uh, out for us is this metaphor. Good teachers often use metaphors in parables. The reason why they're used and the reason why they're helpful is because they take something that is familiar, understandable, clear, straightforward, common. Usually metaphors are things that are common so that everybody can access them. 
and you use that metaphor to explain something that is more complex, more unfamiliar, or more difficult to understand. So Jesus takes a very plain process of nature and he uses it as a metaphor for us. And usually the thing that they're trying to explain is of more value or more consequence than the metaphor itself. So obviously Jesus is not talking about a simple kernel of wheat. He is making a much broader statement about life and about his plan. So Christ is the master of words, the master of instruction. He is the very word of God. He is able, listen to this, to sum up the entire purpose of his life in a metaphor that takes about eight seconds to speak. Isn't that amazing? Christ has this command of reality such that he can describe his entire existence with this little picture. And so he says, take a kernel of wheat. Take a kernel of wheat. A kernel of wheat is very small. It's about that big. It's very small. And he says, put it on a shelf, well-preserved, in a jar if you like, and it will remain there forever. It will stay there in that condition, drying out, forever. It will remain alone. But he says, if you bury it and it dies, it will produce a crop of wheat. It will produce much fruit. I looked it up. A kernel of wheat produces one stalk of wheat. A stalk of wheat has a head on top of it with 50 more kernels. 50 more kernels. I did a whole bunch of math on how many kernels are in a bushel. There are 17,000 kernels in a pound. There are about 32 pounds in a bushel. So there's over a million kernels of wheat in one bushel. And you can make about 42 loaves of commercial bread. I don't know how that related to this time, but about 42 loaves of commercial bread today out of one bushel. Now, bread was critical to this time in history. Anytime you brought up a bread metaphor, you had people's attention because bread was the greatest sustenance. They had fish, but Remember the the boy who had five loaves and two fish? You always have more bread than meat in this type of economy, in this type of uh, geographic location. So bread was sustenance. Jesus spoke to this when he said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger again. This idea of sustenance and, and requiring bread was built into the ministry of Jesus Christ. He described who he was using bread metaphors more than once. And so in the, in the mind of people, it is critical for this kernel of wheat to reproduce. This kernel of wheat must reproduce. If it remains alone, it remains a useless, unused, potential food item for a family. And so when they hear if a kernel of wheat does not go into the ground and it remains alone, that is an inherently useless kernel of wheat. We must find another option for that kernel. That kernel must go on to fulfill its purpose. Because when it produces, it can be ground into flour, which can be baked into bread, which can be another day of living. And this is critical. He says this word, unless, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. This word, unless, introduces a limit, a natural limit to the usefulness of a kernel of wheat. In other words, its usefulness can only go so far as a kernel of wheat. Unless it dies, it will not go on to something else. There's a natural limit which cannot be undone or reframed by humans. It's an order of nature. 
It demands the death of the kernel in order for the kernel to produce anything that can be useful to humans. It has to die first. I, I never thought of a kernel of wheat or a seed actually dying. You just think you plant it in the ground and it has a sort of happy party down there and it turns into whatever you planted. But what Christ is saying is that it actually dies. The seed as we know it breaks down, decomposes. I'm going to talk about this more on Sunday, but there's a germ inside there. And unless the shell breaks down, that germ can never get outside of the shell casing and absorb nutrients from the soil. And so the seed itself actually has to die. It has to break down. It has to cease to exist in order for the, the wheat to grow. And so there's almost this paradox in nature that tells us that without some kind of death, there will be no new life. Without some kind of death, without, without some kind of cycle, there is no new life. Now, we could easily ramp off here into some spiritist, new age sort of idea of nature and how it you know, reflects that we're not going to go that way at all because Jesus makes it very clear what this is about. The question is, so what? Okay, so especially in our day, I don't care much about a kernel. Most of us will never hold a kernel of wheat in our lives. Most of us can go get as much bread as we want from the grocery store. So what does Jesus want you and I to know about this today? Well, he gives us a principle. <clears throat> Verse 25, this is what this is about. Whoever loses his life, sorry, whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. That's the principle. That's the principle that we need the kernel to understand. <clears throat> Just like the kernel, humans have two options presented to them for how to live one's life. There's two ways. Here's one way. You can love your life, which brings about the ironic result that in the end you lose everything that you thought you had. So there's, there's ironic and unexpected results for these two ways of living. The first one is to love your life, which leads you nowhere. It leads you to loss. It leads you to emptiness. It leads you to destruction of what you thought you had. Here's the other way. You can hate your life in this world, which again brings about another counterintuitive result, which means you would not expect it. You will not only find life, but Jesus says that you will take hold of life eternal. Friends, you may all understand your salvation. You may understand and love Christ. But this is something that you can also bring with you as part of your gospel presentation to your friends. This is two ways that humans can live. One is to seek life for yourself. One is to give up your life and take hold of eternal life. We need to apply this directly to ourselves, but this is also the core of the gospel. And the reality is that we likely wouldn't believe Jesus if he had just launched straight into this lesson, right? It's like, gather around everybody. If you love your life, you will lose it. And if you hate your life, you will gain it. It just sounds literally contradictory. It just sounds like those don't make any sense, which is why he began with the kernel analogy which is why he began with a metaphor to say, you all understand this process in nature. You understand that this is necessary. This makes sense to you, doesn't it? You recognize that you will not get a crop, a field of wheat, if you collect all your kernels in a jar. You won't. 
you will end up with kernels in a jar. But if you want to feed a village, if you want to create a business, you must multiply, you must plant, you must create death in some way in order to bring about life. And so to the person who would say, what do you mean hate my life? Jesus is not inviting you to go around miserably sulking and saying, woe is me. You know, if I just hate my existence, then God will bless me. That's not what he's saying. It's a relative statement. Christians ought to be some of the most joyful people we know because our suffering actually has a context and a reason. But what Jesus is saying is that if you hate your life in this life, meaning you do not hold it as, as high a priority as you possibly can. To say that there is something beyond this life, that my life is good, but there is something beyond it which I need to get, which I need to take in. The person who loves his or her life is like a seed that remains alone. That's the parallel. A person who loves their life, lives it only for themselves, get as much as I can, get as popular as I can, get as comfortable as I can, get as much money as I can, have as much vacation as I can, do as much as I can for me. That's a person who loves their life. What is the result of that? It remains alone. It remains alone, isolated, broken off from its natural need for life. Your best life now is a disconnected, empty life. The result is disappointment at best because it's empty, alone, and meaningless. And worse you actually lose your life. You actually lose the hope of eternal life. This is the pursuit of all humanity. How can we live? I mean, biology is working at this every day. How can we extend life? How can we preserve um, ourselves? Ironic that we destroy life for the unborn, and yet for those who are lucky enough to be alive, we want to extend life as far as we possibly can. And so the pursuit of man is life, but do they want life with God? The Christian message says there is no life apart from God. It remains alone. There, if there is no connection with God, if there is no connection to the family of God, you are alone. You are like a dried out acorn. There is no tree. There is no legacy. There is no reproduction. There is no fruit. It is isolation and death. But the one who hates his or her life, this is the other option, is like the one who looks beyond the immediate to go to the bigger picture and, hear this, is willing to let something go, whatever is necessary to achieve that eternal life. That's what Christ is saying. Not that you would hate every aspect of your life or act miserable, but that you would recognize if there is anything in this life I need to give up to get eternal life, just show me what it is and I'll let it go because there's nothing more precious than eternal life. That's what Christ is saying. Eternal life is the great goal of humanity. It's humanity's greatest expression to have eternal life with God. And so to hate your life is to say, is there anything about my life that prevents me from eternity with God? Then I hate it. And I will let it go and I will cut it off. And I will seek to die in some way to grasp something greater. Here's a question that the unbelieving world might ask us. Isn't it possible that, or is it necessary that we need to sacrifice something to achieve security? Why can't we have both? You know, if God is a loving God, why doesn't he let us have both? Well, think of it this way. Um, I picture my son, Lewis, um, going up the stairs. Who He's two, and he's not quite steady on the stairs yet. He's doing really well, but 
Sometimes he wants to bring everything upstairs with him to bed. And usually that's in the form of two fistfuls of Thomas trains. We have way too many Thomas trains and he wants them all. And he doesn't know how to use pockets yet, so he just grabs them. And he has this frantic whine when he's like, I I need all these, I need them now. And then we get to the stairs and he's like, but I also want to hold dad's hand. He can't do it, right? Is it necessary that he would give up something potentially even good in order to achieve security with his dad? Yes, he needs a free hand. Sadly, that's the way that we work. When we cling to everything that God has given us, and when we cling to our sin, when we cling to what's immediate, we have no ability to reach to God. We have no ability to take hold of God, to have any semblance of room in our lives for him. This is why the process of becoming a Christian is called being born again. We can't just shift our lives around and and move things over on the shelf and say, oh God, God, you can go right here. I I think that'll fit in with everything else. I didn't have to get rid of anything, God. I just did some spring cleaning and I rearranged everything. And you fit perfectly right in there. That's not the message of the Christian faith. The Christian faith is that if you do not die to your life now, you cannot know God. There is no gospel unless there is death. Jesus said that we need to experience some kind of death in order to move into the reality of life. This storyline has been all but utterly erased from our cultural narrative. The idea of personal sacrifice has been completely erased even from the secular narrative of our culture, especially in the West where we enjoy unbelievable prosperity, unbelievable wealth, unbelievable comfort. We've lost the reality that it might require some sacrifice to get where you want to go. The only contradictory to that, I feel like, is the sports world. The sports world still represents some kind of baseline reality for us. And we just celebrate, or I did, I celebrated Tiger Woods winning the Masters last weekend, and his moral life has been an absolute tragedy, and I have no support of that. But the reality is that when you see a guy come back from back fusion surgery, when he used to not be able to get onto the floor and play with his kids, to come back and win a 72-hole tournament as prestigious as the Masters and as demanding and long as Augusta National, you have to recognize the amount of work that goes into that. It's not pure natural ability. It is work. It is sacrifice. It is, it is carve everything else out of your life that could possibly get in the way of this goal. But we live our lives as if, well, can't we just be the best at what we want and also have everything else and also have the vacations? Can I pay off my house and also go on three vacations a year? Can't I have it all? Can't I put it on my line of credit? We have this culture that just says, have what you want, take what you deserve. We have lost this narrative that it would require the death of something in order to achieve something. Sadly, that affects our spiritual lives too. We think God wants to give us everything we want and also everything he is. There's a, there's a spiritual narrative that we hear a lot of that says God wants to give you everything that you crave and also himself. That is not the message of faith. The message of faith is he who hates his life will find it eternally. You will find great reward on the other side. Ultimate meaning is not to indulge in whatever draws your desire. Friends, our kids are learning that. Our politicians are telling us that. And Jesus 
slams the door shut on that reality. It's not real. And when our kids understand the Christian faith, they're going to have a lot better time understanding the world in front of them. When they are taught of the policies and of the philosophies of our secular system, they're going to have a really hard time understanding the Christian faith because they're going to come to the Christian faith in the same way they are taught in schools, which is that you can have it all. You can be you. You can be whatever you desire. And also you can have God if it's what you want. The Christian faith does not teach that, which is why they first need to have a grounding in faith if they're going to have a clue how to operate in the world. They will not understand Christianity if we are letting all the other poison cloud their minds because this is how life works. This is how we find God. This is how we take hold of eternal life. So Jesus has given us a metaphor. He has shown us the parallel principle and now he's going to conclude with an invitation of sorts. That is, this message has to draw a reaction from you. You have to respond in some way. You might be a Christian. I don't know if maybe you maybe are not even a Christian this morning. I don't know where the heart of every person here is. But Christ demands that we respond to this. The Easter story is one that demands a response. It demands a reaction of some kind from those who hear it. Here's what it is. 26. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. And if anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. And so we have this principle of two ways to live. And then we have this specific application, this specific invitation. So Jesus lays out, he says, there's two ways to live. One of them leads to eternal life. One of them leads to loss. Let's assume you want eternal life. Let's just assume that for a minute, that when you hear that, you say, yeah, okay, I want it. Like, show me how to die so I can take eternal life. That could leave us spinning and chasing our tails for a long time, don't you think? Like, what exactly about my life is it that I need to give up? God, how do I find you? How do I take hold of eternal life? God does not leave it as a mystery. How would you ever know if you found it? Jesus says right here, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. You must follow Christ. You must follow Christ. There is not some generic invitation to go live in a monastery and just cut all pleasures out of your life. That's not how you take hold of eternal life. You don't go home and throw out your Xbox and throw out your five-year-old cheddar, get rid of all your wine, buy a used car instead of your new one, move into a smaller house, sell your boat. That's not the path to God. It's not. You can do all that you want. But if you are not following Christ, you are still lost. This is not to live a life of austerity. This is not to say, if you just cut out all the pleasure from your life, you'll know God. Because we, saw, we heard a quote a couple weeks ago from Calvin reminding us that our hearts are idol factories. Even if we don't have the pleasures around us, we will seek things to worship and put our trust in other than God if we have not placed our trust in Christ. So Jesus says, you need to follow me. Whoever serves me must follow me also. A life of action is how we respond to this invitation. The Christian faith is not one of just words. It's not just doctrine. It's not just belief and confession. The Christian life is one of action. It's one of going. It's one of following. It's one of being with Christ. 
Jesus, um, there's a time when he invited people to come and follow him and there was two different men. And he said, come and follow me. And one said, hang on, I just have to go back to my town and bury my father because he died. That's a noble thing, right? Jesus says, let the dead bury their dead. You come and follow me. To another one, he said, come and follow me. And the man said, oh, I have business to take care of. I need to wrap up my accounts. And Jesus said, you need to follow me. When, so so the, the idea is there, there is that when you come to Christ, you set aside your priorities. You set aside your ambitions. You set aside your vision for your life. Now, Christ has this incredible way of giving you something so much deeper and so much better than you could dream for your own life, but it may not look the way you want. It may not look like the six-figure CEO salary type job. It may not look like becoming, you know, a tenured professor. It may not look like becoming, you know, a wakeboard instructor or whatever those things are, but it could mean any of those things. I don't know what God's specific plan is for you, but I'll tell you this, that God will employ you in his service in a way that suits who you are. God will put you to work in his kingdom, in his church, in a way that suits who you are and what he's made you to be. You do not have to disconnect yourself from the community and go live in a monastery and isolate yourself and say goodbye to all your friends. But you do have to say to Christ, I want to follow you, whatever that means. Whatever the parameters are around my life that I have to draw to say, outside of this, I will not go. I will serve you, Jesus Christ. Whatever the cost is, that is what it means to hate your life. It means to enjoy it to its fullest in Jesus Christ. We need to be assured and we need to assure our friends that there is no other way to find eternal life. When God calls you to follow Christ, you need to come. If he's calling your name, you need to respond. You need to go. You need to follow. You need to be with. You need to go. Leave behind whatever it is. For many of us, that's just a worldview. That's just bad thinking. It's just bad addiction to, to certain philosophies and sins. It's it might not mean you have to move. It might not mean you have to do this or that, like I said, but it does mean something. It does mean a change of your life. Whoever serves me must follow me. We cannot claim that we serve Christ and have no evidence of it in our lives. Christ says the two go together. To say you serve me is to be where I am with me, serving me. Christian belief is not one of just confession. Now, we may be tempted to think that here's this Jesus, this great king who sits on a throne and says, hey, all my followers, you need to give up your lives if you want to be part of this movement. That's what all great cult leaders say. You all need to give up your lives so that I can sit in my comfortable throne. But it is anything but with Jesus Christ, because here is the gospel in all of this. This is not a message about what you can do for God. This is not a message about how much of your life you can leave behind for him. It's a message about what Christ has done for you. Do you know why? That metaphor is important for an illustration for how we ought to live our lives. But do you know who is the seed in the metaphor? It's not you. The seed, the kernel of wheat, is not you, it is not me, it is not your grandma, it is not your spouse, or oh, if they would just finally die to themselves, we would, it's not them, it's, no, it's none of us. 
The kernel of wheat in the metaphor is Jesus Christ. It is absolutely true that we need to give up our lives to come to eternal life, but it's nothing compared with what Jesus gave up in order to give us that option. Christ first died so that we could die. It is not the greatness of your life and laying it down that will bring you into eternal life. It is the immense sacrifice that Jesus Christ made on Good Friday that gives us the ability to come to him. Jesus went to Jerusalem knowing that he was wanted for execution. Still he went and preached. Still he came and he said, no one takes my life. I lay it down on my own. I lay it down on my own. We are not the seed that bears much fruit. Jesus said earlier that he is like a vine and we are like branches. We are attached to the product that is bearing fruit. If a branch is broken off from the vine, they produce nothing. We remain alone if we are not connected with Christ. He is that kernel of wheat needing to die to give way to greater life. Unless a seed dies, it remains alone. The death of Jesus Christ is the path that God made who cleared it for us. His ultimate death invites us to die with him in order that we would walk with him. So in other words, his death means everything. His death means everything. And anything that we would or could do is completely meaningless apart from his first sacrifice. His first sacrifice. Philippians chapter 2 says, Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be held on to. But he emptied himself and he took the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Romans 5.19 says, For by one man... For by one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. <clears throat> that's Adam. So by the one man's obedience, that same obedience that Philippians 2 talks about, obedience to the point of death on a cross, so by one man's obedience, <clears throat> the many will be made righteous. The many will be made righteous. Colossians 3.3 3 says, For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also with, appear with him in glory. Christ is the seed that died. The fruit of that death is now, as I, Bob was mentioning, I was talking about this with Kevin earlier, that w we cannot just park ourselves here on the death because we already know because we are here this morning that it has borne much fruit. The evidence of that fruitfulness is here this morning. None of us came to God on the basis of anything that we did. Not one person. That is one thing I do know about all of us. None of us came to God because we did something for him. Every single one of us are here because Christ died like a kernel of wheat. He went into the ground willingly and obediently that he would bear fruit. <coughs> but the invitation of the gospel is an invitation to die. 
It's an invitation to die. Not necessarily physically, but to say, God, my life is no longer my own. Scripture also says that we were bought with a high price. The price was the blood of the Lamb of God. A high price purchased our lives. We are now no longer our own, but we live for God, for his glory through Jesus Christ. He who hates his life in this world will find life eternal. That's the invitation of the gospel. So I pray that you don't let this weekend pass by without really, really meditating and dwelling on this reality in your life. That because of Christ's sacrifice, we are invited into eternal life. But there is also a cost at our end. If we love our life, we remain alone. But if we hate our life, we find it eternally. This is the message of Good Friday. We can enter the covenant with God. We can enter the celebration of the resurrection because of his death, because of his sacrifice, because of his willingness, because of his perfection, because of his obedience, because of his death, we can come to God for no other reason. By no sacrifice that we ever make can we come to God only in the perfection of Christ. And that is good news. It is good news that there's nothing you can do because it will save you trying. Let's pray.